Welcome to Sanity, a podcast to help you keep yours in today's divisive political climate. I'm your host, Audrey Scagnelli, and I hope you'll join me in this quest for optimism in a post-2016 world. I'm sitting here currently with Alan Casey. He is the CEO of Democracy Entrepreneurs, and we just spent a great weekend at the Harvard Kennedy School assembling over 100 democracy entrepreneurs. What we're going to talk about on Sanity today is a little bit about this conference and Alan's work spreading more democracy entrepreneurship. But I want to start just by welcoming you to the show and asking if you can share a little bit about your history and background with a commitment to service. Thank you so much, Audrey. It's great to be with you. I love what you're doing with Sanity and happy to participate. Appreciate the invitation. So I, um, you know, I'm a child of immigrants. My father was an immigrant from Iran. My mother's family, my grandparents came from Italy. And I think with that background, they taught me about what an incredible country America is uh, because of our ideals. My dad left a dictatorship to come to a country of freedom and really raised me to appreciate incredible privilege and opportunities to grow up in America. And you can be anything you want to be as long as you get a good education. And my parents made great sacrifices so that I could get an excellent education and that you work hard and believe in yourself in this country. And my dad was very much about history and democracy. And my mom, classic Italian, was very much about people. She really loved everybody. And so with that inspiration, I got very involved in the national service movement because I saw it as a way both to help give young people a chance as they were becoming adults to participate as active duty, full-time participants in our democracy through doing a year of service. And as my mother taught me, spread more love in the world. And so I started City Year a national service program with my college roommate, Michael Brown, and other friends. And our idea was to really be an action tank for the idea of national service. So we, we bring together young people from all different backgrounds to work together for a full-time academic year of service as a way to inculcate the values of active duty participation, show young people that they can have agency and make change, build community, find that we have a lot in common and break down barriers and help solve problems. And I did that for about 20 years. And that really was the brainchild for the creation of AmeriCorps. Uh, Yes, we were very fortunate. We actually got our first, we started with all private funding because we wanted to be entrepreneurs. We were social entrepreneurs and we wanted to frankly design the program the way we wanted to design it without any restrictions. And there wasn't any government funding for the kind of work we wanted to do. We actually got our first federal funding from President George H.W. Bush. And then uh, President Clinton visited us during the campaign when he was running for president. And at that meeting, I still remember it was in December of 1991, he spent a few hours with us. He said, if I become president, I'll make this a national program. And then true to his word, he created AmeriCorps and the city was a model and used us as a, a model inspiration for what that became. You've really made a point throughout your career of highlighting that service is not a Republican or a Democrat purpose. It's an American one. And in 2008, you organized a summit that both candidate Barack Obama and candidate John McCain spoke at. I would love if you could talk a little bit about the pledge that they signed there and what kind of lasting effect that uh, that has had for the country. Sure. Well, the wonderful thing about service, national service, it's really in our DNA as a country, going back to President George Washington, and it has had strong support from both sides of the aisle. As I mentioned, we got our first federal funding from 
President George H.W. Bush, who said, any definition of a successful life must include service to others, created the Points of Light Foundation, created the National uh, Commission on Service, which I was honored to be appointed to by him. He did that in partnership with Senator Kennedy in a very bipartisan way. Um, President Clinton visited us, created AmeriCorps. In fact, uh, President George W. Bush actually grew AmeriCorps by 50%, grew the Peace Corps, did a whole bunch of great service initiatives after 9-11. And then, you know, I left City Year to start Be the Change in 2007 because I wanted to do more movement building work, first on national service and then on fighting poverty and supporting veterans. And we did organize this event that we called Service Nation on 9-11 and 9-12 in New York City. And we were able to get both candidates, Senator, then Senator Obama and Senator McCain, and they came together. It was the only thing they really agreed on during the campaign. They became original co-sponsors of legislation that we worked closely with Senators Kennedy and Hatch on over for more than a year, which became into law uh, the Serve America Act, which authorized AmeriCorps to go to 30,000 people, created the Social Innovation Fund, which was a very creative way to leverage small dollars from the government to promote social innovation across the country, uh, changed the post-service award, focused service on five priority areas, education, fighting poverty, empowering veterans, the environment, and healthcare. It was very bipartisan. We got, I think it was 79 votes, the United States Senate, a similarly big vote in the in the House. The legislation passed in the first 100 days of the Obama administration. And it was a real, you know, coming together. Uh, unfortunately, that legislation has been funded to the degree that it was authorized. I mean, it was authorized to go to 20,000 people. There was some growth in the first couple of years, and then it sort of leveled off. And we are now roughly at about 75,000 AmeriCorps members. So we need to get it funded, but there has been very strong bipartisan support. And that's actually been evidenced in the past couple of years when we had a fully Republican Congress and they not only funded uh, the Corporation for National Service, but actually increased the funding in a small way. So I think after, you know, we've now had almost 30 years really of the modern national service movement going back to President George H.W. Bush in 1989. And we know it works. Um, it's all across the country. There are efforts happening in every state, every uh, congressional district. And now the question is, how do we take this idea and make it more of a universal opportunity? Kind of the theme of your life is taking ideas and turning them into opportunities. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I should note for listeners that I, I first met Alan when working with former Lieutenant Governor Kerry Healy, to create an event called Millions in the Middle that brought together a lot of different leaders and groups that are working to try to find some ways to bridge some of our divides. So as you can imagine, it's something that I was very passionate about and still am through sanity. Um, but we actually, we, we got to know each other briefly at the event, and then we really got to know each other because we took a train back together from New York back up to Boston. And on that train ride, you shared with me a little bit more about your family. And we were talking about the 2016 election and how it's affected every person in this country's lives. Um, but I'd love if you could just share a little bit about your story there. Sure. Well, just one more thing on the service point before we pivot to that. I have the honor of serving on a new federal commission on military, national and public service, which was created uh, three years ago after the Obama administration lifted the ban on women in combat. The issue then became, should women now have to register for the draft to select a service the way young men do? And Congress decided to create a commission to study it. And again, Senator McCain, who was a real hero for this whole movement, 
partnered with Senator Reid to have the focus of the commission not just be on registration for selective service, but also to look at expanding opportunities for young people in particular to serve through civilian national service and also local, state, and federal government. It's 11 of us, very bipartisan, and we have we just put out an interim report. It's at inspire2serve.gov, the number two, if you're interested, and we'll have a final report coming out a year from now with recommendations on what should be done on all these issues. So I do think there's new momentum. Uh, there's been a lot of interest, um, and I'm hopeful that we can actually make a, a real leap. In terms of me, as I said, my father was an immigrant from Iran. He came to this country fleeing a dictatorship. He was a big believer in Mossadegh, who was the popularly elected prime minister of Iran. My dad had a chance to go to medical school in Switzerland in the early 1950s, and while he was there, Mossadegh was overthrown by the British government and our CIA, and he decided he didn't want to go back to a dictatorship. He'd come to America and raised me with this incredible... I mean, my dad was a classic immigrant, inspired by the ideals of our country, the Statue of Liberty, what America stands for, and he was an incredible public servant himself. He was a doctor, did a lot of free care, was spent years doing cancer research, you know, making very little money. My mother actually supported us as a nurse anesthetist. Um, his dream was to cure cancer, and he did some great groundbreaking work, but I'm one of four kids, and he realized he had to support his family, and eventually we moved up to New Hampshire, and he went into private practice, but still did a lot of work with the, he was on the board of the National Cancer Society, he was very involved with the Medical Society, he did a lot of groundbreaking work. I mentioned my mother was Italian, and taught me really love everybody, and, you know, the 2000 election was interesting for me, because, you know, the Muslim ban was one of the first things that the new administration did, and there was an Iranian doctor who had my father's same first name who was doing cancer research in Boston on a multi-year fellowship at Children's Hospital who came to Logan Airport with his wife and two kids who were young, like six and four, and was detained at the airport and couldn't get into the country, even though he was doing great work at Children's Hospital, and they sent him back to Tehran. And I thought to myself, wow, that could have been my dad. You know, very similar story, and I, I think a, a very tragic thing on a lot of levels. And, you know, uh, and my mother's side of the family, very working-class Italian. My, my grandparents came here 100 years ago and settled in. Actually, they started in Mississippi, but there was a lot of prejudice there against Italians. And so they, my great-grandfather was a coal miner, so they moved up to western Pennsylvania so he could work in the coal mines. And, and when my mom was growing up, and when I was a kid, I was born in Pittsburgh, but spent the first couple years of my life living in Catanning, where my grandparents lived, lived with them. It was a thriving middle-class town because of the coal mines and the steel mills and the factories and very patriotic. I had family that served in World War II in Korea and Vietnam. They were working class. They didn't get deferments. Uh, American flags everywhere still are. But it's been in an economic depression for more than 30 years. I mean, not 10 years, not 20 years. It's really scandalous. And... You know, Main Street's all boarded up. The jobs have left. Opioid crisis is uh, very painful. And people have lost hope. And a lot of my Italian family uh, voted for President Trump uh, because they felt that, you know, they weren't being heard. And he promised to bring jobs back and change the corrupt nature of Washington, which they feel like isn't really paying attention to them. So I, I had this interesting situation uh, with these two sides of my family both uh, incredibly wonderful people and deeply love this country. And, uh, you know, one side voting for a president who then banned the other side of my family. And, uh, and it's really why I'm doing the work I'm doing now, because I feel like we have to get underneath what's going on in our democracy. We have to support the people who are emerging to 
make our democracy more inclusive and participatory and fair for everyone. And that we have to bridge these divides, which I am still very hopeful. My whole life has been about that, that we can do if we come at it with an open heart and open mind and don't prejudge people who we haven't had a chance to, as I said to the city or core members our very first day, walk in the moccasins. I think that that is a really wonderful segue to asking you a little bit about how this concept of democracy entrepreneurs, an organization that you are now leading, came to be. Uh, in the fall, you wrote an op-ed in the Boston mm -hmm. Globe called The Rise of Democracy Entrepreneurs. A lot of the people that we have on Sanity, I would say, are democracy entrepreneurs. They wouldn't necessarily know to call themselves that because I do think it's a pioneering term and one that in this over this weekend was sort of likened to social entrepreneurship, which now we all understand. And when you were starting it out, no one knew what you were talking about. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about how this idea for an organization that has this primary focus came to be? Sure, Audrey, thank you. So as you mentioned, so I've been a social entrepreneur my whole career, but 31 years ago when I graduated from law school and I was starting City Year, you know, I told my law school classmates I wanted to be a social entrepreneur and nobody knew what it was and they kind of looked at me cross-eyed and said, so what do you mean, you want to make money doing social work? And I said, no, I want to bring the same kind of creativity and innovation and new thinking and entrepreneurial strategies and approaches to addressing social challenges as people do every day in the private sector to come up with new industries and new technologies and new approaches to solving challenges in the business world or in our economy. Now, the good news is 30 years later, uh, social entrepreneurship uh, has become a whole phenomenon, a whole ecosystem, a whole sector where now it's taught on 400 college campuses. Uh, there's a whole funding system for people who want to start social entrepreneur organizations all the way to scaling them. Public policy has been affected. There's media that covers it. There's the whole solution journalism movement that David Bornstein's led on. It's global. Bill Drayton's really the godfather of the whole movement with Ashoka. It's everywhere. And now we have a thriving ecosystem to constantly come up with new strategies and new entrepreneurial approaches to address social challenges. And it's having a huge impact. What's very inspiring to me is everyone recognizes our democracy is in trouble. The polls show this, statistics show this, and this has been building for a while. This is not in the past two years. It's really been more than 20 years that uh, there's been real challenges on a whole number of levels. And what's inspiring to me is that people are emerging now to be what I call democracy entrepreneurs. So they're not waiting on the two political parties or on the elected officials to tackle the variety of challenges in our democracy, whether it's ethics reform, gerrymandering, the challenge of media and news deserts, voting rights, voting registration, voting turnout, voter suppression, reimagining civic life so that people get developed from a young age to become active participants in our democracy. So I started meeting a lot of young people. It's not all young people, but a lot of young people who are taking this into their own hands. I mean, some of the, and just totally inspired. They remind me of us 30 years ago, the number of us who, you know, like Wendy Kopp, who started Teach for America, or Jeffrey Kennedy, who started Home Children's Zone, Billy Shore, who started Share Our Strength, you know, and we all started to meet each other. This group is emerging, and it's groups like March for Our Lives. These incredible high school students, originally out of Parkland, Florida, but now have launched a national movement around gun safety and youth voter turnout or Voters Not Politicians, started with a Facebook post by a 26-year-old named Katie Fahey saying, I want to take on gerrymandering in Michigan. 
and led a grassroots effort that actually changed the Michigan state constitution in the recent 2018 election with almost 62% of the vote. Or uh, New Voters, which was started by a high school student uh, outside of Philadelphia, John V. Rao, who's now a freshman here at Harvard, who incorporated a nonprofit in high school to register first her classmates to vote and then spread it to 500 schools already because she felt like young people aren't being listened to uh, by our political leaders and that they need to become active, informed voters. And her goal is to get to thousands of high schools. And I could give you more. We had, as you said, about 100 of them at this gathering this weekend. There's a, a new phenomenon happening, which is really inspiring of people who are saying our democracy isn't working for everyone and we're going to figure out a way to change it. There are a number of organizations and people that are starting to pop up or, or some existing ones that want to find a space to improve our democracy and in, increase the number of people participating in our government. I think what gets to be a little difficult to navigate is there are people across the entire political spectrum that are concerned about these issues. Not everybody across the entire political spectrum, but how can a space like this cultivate a welcoming space for people across the ideological pers perspective, because there's an incredible amount of diversity in backgrounds and ages and races that are involved in this space, which is incredible. But there's also an extremely, I think, important need to have welcoming arms for all ide ideologies. Yes. I think that's a great point, Andrea. I, I think, you know, we had uh, Professor Larry Lessig, who is a good friend of mine, who's been a leader on democracy reform efforts for years, a leader on fighting corruption. And actually, uh, there are, if you call them cross-partisan coalitions, trans-partisan coalitions. If you look at the issue of corruption, you can find that there are folks who've been leaders in the Tea Party and folks who've been activists on the left side of the Democratic Party who totally agree on we have to deal with the issue of corruption, money in politics, who dominates the system, lobbying reform, that cuts across all ide ideologies. And the truth is, we won't succeed to change it unless there is a truly transpartisan, bipartisan, nonpartisan effort on that. As I mentioned, Katie Fahey, you know, she had a, a rule in her effort on voters, not politicians. We are going to be meticulously nonpartisan because this is something that affects everybody. And they were also, I think, as she said, radically inclusive. So they, they invited everybody to participate. And that's why they got 62% of the vote. Larry actually has a great thing that he presented at our conference with, that he called constitutional politics or platform politics, that when you are dealing with foundational democracy issues, voting, gerrymandering, redistricting, ethics, transparency, money in politics, media, it has to be nonpartisan, transpartisan, because it just it won't succeed, because you're talking about structural, foundational issues on democracy, which he distinguished from normal what he called normal party politics, which also happens every day, where people can have very strong disagreements on how to solve the healthcare crisis or the environmental crisis or immigration, whatever it may be, and that we need to have both. What's exciting about the democracy entrepreneurship movement is that for a long time, we haven't had a, a force, especially on the constitutional politics side of our country. And because the party politics has become so politicized and so partisan, we don't make any progress. I mean, it takes a Katie Fady to Katie Fade and Jeremy Man. So I think that's an exciting thing about this new movement is that leaders are emerging across the traditional political spectrum and even outside of the political spectrum to say, how do we get to these systemic 
democracy issues. Media is a whole nother one where this is a big issue, the challenge of news deserts, where local media in particular is drying up. And there's all kinds of studies that say if you lose local media, you actually become more partisan mm -hmm. because there isn't a, a local source for people to share information or what's going on. A voting goes down because people aren't uh, getting the information they need and elected officials aren't held accountable. Things like what happened in Flint, Michigan with the water crisis. And that cuts across all political ideologies. That's why the First Amendment is the First Amendment. We need to have a strong media presence, especially at the local level, to make sure that our democracy works. I am reminded of a statistic that Nicole Mele, who yes. is the director of the Shorenstein Center at the Herbert Kennedy School, shared with us, which is that 21 states in the country, so almost half of the states in the country, do not have a reporter in Washington, D.C., who is serving as a watchdog for their two senators and, and also you know, members of Congress in the House. And I think that that, that contributes to this as well. Absolutely. Yes, people don't get the information. And then their state's views aren't represented, not reflected. What do you think have been some of the challenges that you've overcome in the early stages of starting Democracy Entrepreneurs? Well, we're still working on it. Um, I was really inspired this weekend. My whole approach when all the change work I've done is to start from the ground up and connect with the people who are actually doing the work. This convening was very important to us because, you know, we'd heard about a number of these leaders. We'd connected with some of them in person, some on the phone. But one of the things we kept hearing was, I'm lonely, or I don't feel like I'm part of a community, or I'm doing my work in isolation, or really there are other people like me. And what was very powerful is bringing people together. We saw there is something special happening. Our whole goal is to be wind in the sails. There were a lot of people who've been wind in my sales and my colleagues' sales and helping the city here be the change with all these other groups. And so, again, I'm, I have the perspective of having been through two movements, the social entrepreneurship movement and the service movement, and what it took to galvanize both of those movements. And that's what we want to do with Democracy Entrepreneurs, is how can we best be in support of? We don't want to drive anything. We don't want to direct it. We just want to respond to the great energy that's emerging. And I particularly have enjoyed working with young people my whole life. And I do think they're the future. And I don't believe that they're the future leaders. I think they're leading right now. So what was so gratifying this weekend is to realize there is a phenomenon. There's something really magical happening, that there is a community emerging. I mean, the social entrepreneurship movement sort of started very slowly, gradually, two years in, three years in, four years in, five years in. There, were, there weren't 100 groups. I think the first Echoing Green Conference I went to, there were maybe 20 people. Mm -hmm. 30. And I think it's because our it's our democracy. It affects all of us. I also think because of technology. I also think because young people have grown up in the service movement and the social entrepreneurship movement so that they've seen these sort of efforts to involve them or their peers. And they've also grown up in a very different time. I was reading a research paper by Peter Hamby, who is now at Snapchat, mm. but he- I know he, Peter, he's great. He was a fellow here and he, he wrote a paper in 2013 about Twitter and the way that presidential elections are covered. So what the mechanics are, the, the actual reporting, how those reporters are selected, et cetera. And one thing that really, two things that struck me in the paper that I would be curious to ask your opinion on he had a quote from Chuck Todd, and Chuck Todd basically predicted that the most successful candidate in 2016, and this is back in 2013, would likely really understand how to use tools like Twitter, mm -hmm. would understand 
the game and would be able to reach into hearts and minds or at least con make convincing statements that really went above whatever the, no the actual norms were for information sharing. And the other thing that he, that Peter Hamby wrote about that I think, I, I feel a little bit of a healthy tension here in terms of, hopefully healthy tension in terms of younger people getting involved, is he was talking about the fact that reporters who were covering presidential campaigns in the past used to be the most seasoned reporters. They were the ones who really understood historical context because they grew up starting out in sitting hall and then, you know, rising up in the ranks. And most of today's reporters that are on the campaign trail, and I can speak to this from being a spokesperson on a campaign trail, are much younger, are fresh out of college or a few years out of college, which in some ways I think really lends a really important perspective. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it that, that kind of perspective just inherently lacks historical context, which is so important I think, to making change happen. So kind of from that lens, what are your thoughts on, you know, we, we need to have a level, at least in my own biased opinion, we need to have a level of historical context in order to move forward and make further progress. So what, what should democracy entrepreneurs, how should, how should they navigate kind of that? Well, I think, I think that's a great question. Um, I think it's important. I mean, we are working in a context. I mean, you know, my own argument you referenced the op-ed I wrote, which I appreciate. You know, I made a case so that our founders were democracy entrepreneurs. I mean, and at the time, what they were doing was totally radical. I mean, taking on the greatest empire in the world, a king, inventing a whole new system of government that vested power in we the people. Those are the first three words of our constitution. Uh, it wasn't fully fair or just you know, slavery is our original sin. What we did to Native Americans, the genocide is, is horrible. But it did set us on, a, it did set up these ideals. And part of our history has been enlarging this circle of democracy and inclusion. This is the 100th anniversary of women getting the right to vote. Um, so I think it's important to understand that historical context and also to look at previous efforts. You know, Alice Paul, a good friend of mine, just wrote a book about Alice Paul, Tina Cassidy, fabulous book about the fight for women's suffrage. And she was a great democracy entrepreneur. It's not a brand new thing, but there's a reawakening now. And part of the value of doing this conference here at the Kennedy School is to provide some of that historical perspective and also the larger context. So I think that's important as we think about this. And also to imagine, you know, what do we want our democracy to be? Not just two years from now. I mean, we tend to be obsessed with the election cycles, and they're important, but it's interesting. You know, after 2016, the political media all focuses on 2018. And then literally the next day, you can go back and look at the news. Who's running for president? Literally the next day, election day, it's like, okay, midterms are open. As opposed to... It's a hamster wheel. Um, yes. As opposed to looking at, well, let's look at some underlying trends. And I mean, one of my hopes for this democracy entrepreneurship movement is that the folks involved and all the people they're bringing in the process will think 10 years down the road. We had some of that conversation. What would we like our democracy to be in 10 years? You know, for example, there's a whole bunch of groups that are around voting saying, well, why isn't voting at 80%? Why do we settle for 50% or 52 in presidential years and 32 in, in midterms, for example? Or, you know, Nico's point, what do we do about the news desert? And there are democracy entrepreneurs, Report for America, Montana Free Press, John Ralston in Nevada, folks in Vermont that are coming up with new ways using technology and online platforms to deal with this. I think that sometimes the political media obsesses on the horse race or 
what's happening right in front of our noses or just the next election, as opposed to stepping back and saying, let's look at some of these. And again, my hope for this movement is that these leaders, and the interesting thing to me is, usually when I talk to democracy entrepreneurs, I say, how long are you going to do this for? And I'm consistently getting the answer back at least 10 years, which is really inspiring to me because they understand these issues have been building for a while and it's going to take a while to really get our democracy to be what we all know it could be or we want it to be. It's not going to happen with one election cycle or, you know, one presidential election. As we start to close, what are your biggest hopes for Democracy Entrepreneurs for the next 10 years, the organization? Well, again, I'm just really gratified and grateful and appreciative that we were able to bring this community together. And there really is an emerging community, and it's extraordinary people. I wish others had been here. It's so inspiring. And I do this work because I'm inspired by these folks, and they are giving me hope. My hope is that, you know, as an organization, we can continue to just support this, nurture it, I would like to see, and this isn't going to be just up to us, it's going to be up to a whole community of people. I would love to see a democracy entrepreneurship ecosystem develop in our country that is as robust as the private sector ecosystem and the social entrepreneurship ecosystem. I think this is key to helping our democracy be as vibrant and just and participatory and inclusive, not just now, not just two years from now, not even eight years from now, that we need I think the reason we're kind of in this mess right now is because it's been too sclerotic. It's been too closed. Our founders did not anticipate, you know, they thought we'd have citizen leaders who would go into government for a period of time and then go back. And instead we've built, as Matthew Dowd said at our conference, it's become this professional class that is basically says we've got sort of a secret code and we don't need you. People understand that. It's part of the reason why we keep having these change elections because it's not working. And so I'd like to say, my hope is not for us as much as the organization, but really for the country and the movement is that we develop an ecosystem and that democracy entrepreneurs, which can be anybody, this is not an exclusive thing, a high school student who just says, I'm going to create a school newspaper because we don't have one so that my peers can start to get informed, or I'm going to create issue forms, or I'm going to register people to vote. For me to be a democracy entrepreneur just means that you are going to come up with a new creative way to engage more people in our democracy, is that we build that ecosystem so that this becomes an ongoing source of reform and renewal and disruption and innovation so that we keep pushing our democracy forward and that we actually live up to what, this, what brought my dad here, my grandparents here, what, what is a beacon to people all over the world to come here, that we will reach our, our potential. Well, Alan, my final question for all guests on Sanity is what are you most optimistic about right here, right now, today? Perhaps, perhaps you've already just answered the question. Um, but I don't know if there's one specific thing that really stands out to you well, in the present. After this weekend, and it was a question, you know, I am very optimistic about this community. And we had a number of amazing people here. We had others who couldn't come. I'm very optimistic that there are leaders stepping forward, new activists, to say, I'm going to take responsibility for our democracy. And they're having impact. And that's what makes me optimistic and hopeful, is that incredible leaders... From, and we have folks from all over the country, too. This isn't just like an East Coast phenomenon or coastal thing. We had folks from Georgia, from Nevada, from Arizona, from Michigan. These new leaders are going to lead us to a better day. Well, thank you for your time, Alan. And I'm excited to see what happens next with this organization. Thank you so much, Audrey, for your interest.